We turn now to a discussion of the preparatory era. Some say the preparation for Jesus' public ministry. And focus on the question of miracles. Four kinds of miracles characterize Jesus' ministry. The first are healings. And these are not always distinguishable from instances where he casts out evil powers. The second are, I suppose, to be called exorcisms, and they do constitute the deliverance of a person from the buffetings of evil. Then resuscitations, referring specifically to the raising of Lazarus after he has died, and in fact three days after. And finally, the nature miracles, where he demonstrates power over the elements. Now, in a general way, the word miracle derives from the Old Testament view that it causes wonder. To say awe or a feeling of incredulity is to extend that idea. In Greek, it means remarkable or unexpected or glorious. And all of Jesus' miracles constitute wonders in that sense. The Hebrew, which is pronounced as mopet, means a portent or a kind of prodigious sign. And it's an action which is thought to authenticate or to validate a prophet's mission, a manifestation rather than a sermon or a set of words. So Jesus' authority is manifest in this way, for he reveals God's dominion, and he is the anointed one with the Spirit. He is the Holy One of Israel. Let me now give an example of each of these kinds of healing without placing them in the chronological sequence which they actually occurred. We read first of a healing of an invalid on a Sabbath day that occurred in Jerusalem near the pool of Bethesda. There was a legend that on a given day each year the waters of this sheep market pool were troubled by an angel. And the desire of those who were invalid was to be there on that occasion and to be the first into the water. For the faith or the superstition was that only that first person would be healed. This man who for 38 years had been unable to walk and who laid on a kind of pad was of course always unable to be the first into the water. Jesus finds him near the area known as the Five Porches apparently discerns the man's faith and says simply take up thy bed and walk. He does so. But later Jesus sees him on the Temple Mount and says to him, Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. And here is one of many places where there is a connection made between healing of the physical body and healing that relieves one of the sin and guilt of his life. And in one case, Jesus even says, which is easier, to say to a man, 
thy sins are forgiven thee, or to say to him, take up thy bed and walk. A close connection, the whole soul involved in the healing process. As for the casting out of evil spirits, the most astonishing moment involves the Gadarene swine. Gadara, we know, was one of the ten cities, the Decapolis, which spread southward along the heights east of the Sea of Galilee, or the Kinneret Sea. And Jesus came into their midst, and without detailing this incident, the final consequence is that he first casts out legion, which is to say many evil spirits that had troubled a boy called lunatic or maniac through his life. And then they ask permission to enter into the bodies of a nearby herd of swine. They are given it, and the swine rush headlong down into the sea and are drowned. We read further that never again was Jesus permitted in that area. The lesson to be derived is at least this much, that evil spirits do or even must yield to the authority and name of Jesus Christ. And second, that their intent is ultimately destructive. As for resuscitations, there is one performed in the north at Galilee, and then the climactic miracle of Lazarus in the south near Jerusalem. And finally, as for the nature miracles, we have the control of Jesus over the wind and the waves, as recorded in the confrontation of the fishermen and his disciples with the raging storm. Even today, in the late afternoon, near the Sea of Galilee, a brisk and hostile wind arises and flows down from the west through what are known as the Horns of Hatim and stir up the waters so radically that rules are made to forbid either swimming or any other form of recreation on this small body of water. But there are times when it is far more violent, and on the occasions that, we, that are recorded now of Jesus, it is clear that the very lives of his disciples were at stake, and they thought they would perish. It wasn't that they were frightened of water, or frightened even of the process much habituated of fishing at night. It was that, in fact, they could have lost their very lives. And Jesus, with a word, simply the word peace, peace, be still, brought the calm that led them again to wonder. We turn now to Jesus and the multiplication of the loaves. Where did this occur? It was in the Galilee, a place where by now his reputation had brought attention, curiosity, arguments. And twice the account refers to, quote, the mountain, quote, without naming it. It was apparently on the north side of the sea. One place is Bethsaida, the northeast shore, a grassy slope, and the other tradition places it in Tabtha, 
which is the northwest shore. In fact, there may have been two occasions, and in each case, Jesus fed a great multitude. Where did the crowd come from? Well, apparently some were with him who had been listening in other places. Others came from afar and joined the group. The time was near the time of Passover, and the most significant uh, change in the life of the observant Jew in Passover is from yeasted or leavened bread to the cardboard-like, thin, unleavened bread. And that is a very vivid contrast and makes one conscious, sometimes for nearly a month before the occasion, of attempting to clean out the entire house, its cupboards, and even some earlier dishes that have been used for bread, all to demonstrate, to establish a break in normal life and to place the mind of the Jew back into the era of deliverance known as the Passover. So to feed on such an occasion in the context of Passover and then to discourse on the subject of bread was perfect timing. At the beginning we read that there were five barley loaves only and two dried fish. It is assumed that the meal from which these loaves had been made was barley, and barley was a step down from the quality of wheat dough. It was less expensive. One can wonder how large the loaves were. Uh, Luke indicates that there were apparently uh, small loaves requiring about three to make a meal. And it may be that they were not loaves of the kind we picture, two or three inches or four even in height, but that they were the kind of bread that was typical then as now, and perhaps even going back to Abrahamic times. We have watched while a woman has taken a handful of dough and begun to make it in this ancient way. She spreads it and thins it until it is larger even than a large size pizza. And the bread that results from one mode of this is called pita. But she continues with it, even using a pillow, until it is perhaps 25 inches in diameter and exceptionally thin. Then, having built a special fire, with a lid which is tapered from the midpoint downward in each direction. She puts in a little more of the mash of, uh, of olives, which is a fine and almost smokeless fuel, and from experience judges when the temperature is right and then places that over the fire. It stays for less than 15 seconds, and then she reverses it, and then places it on the stack of such bread. This, which is called bread, or even daily bread, is then broken off in sections and crunched in the hand and dipped in various solids or preparations 
and the result is an excellent meal. Well, it may or may not have been that kind of bread, but bread it was in connection with dried fish. The people were urged by Jesus to sit down, and they reclined. It means more on an elbow to the side. Then 5,000, we read, apparently on a grassy slope, witnessed Jesus taking these two loaves. He first gives thanks. And there is no indication of whether this was a prayer of gratitude or of blessing or both. And having done so, then he, and there is no mention of his disciples or others helping him, passed the bread around in the multitude, apparently hand to hand. The record says that when they had had as much as they wanted, the King James says, they were filled. The exact root of the word means uh, filled and satisfied, or in Greek, had enough, but enough implies satisfaction. He then turns to his disciples and says, gather up the fragments that are left over so that nothing will perish, with the result that twelve baskets, each full, are left over by those who had been fed. And then many in the multitude say, surely this is the prophet who is to come. All that is the setting, the event, that is the background then of a glorious discourse, all of John 6, on the living bread. And Jesus begins that by saying, you seek me not because you saw my miracles and believe, but because, in effect, you were hungry. Not, in other words, because you desire to keep my sayings, but because you have been fed and expected to be fed. Then he speaks of himself as the living bread having come down from heaven and uses the word with which their Passover feast traditions are filled, namely the word manna. Daily manna, never too much for the day, but never too little. And just before the Sabbath, a double portion was what had been provided from on high for the children of Israel in the wilderness. He compares that and makes the living distinction. Your fathers, now dead, ate manna in the wilderness, but I am the living bread which came down from heaven. And if any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. The bread I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, all that Jesus says in his entire ministry revolves around the idea of life. And he refers again and again to the elements that make possible physical nourishment and then identifies himself with them. Here it is with bread. Elsewhere it is also with water or wine, and in another place with the living vine, and in another place with salt, which is savored salt, and which otherwise is not satisfying. Now the people consider this a sign, and some are moved, but after the discourse, 
in which he so identifies himself, many, including some who had up to that day been truly his followers, his disciples, go away. They are puzzled and even put off by his so urgent identification. And they say to themselves things like, isn't this the Jesus we know? Isn't this the man who came from Nazareth? Is he not uh, the son of Joseph? And all that is incompatible, they believe, with these apparent statements of self-exaltation. Jesus, who has just performed a miracle of feeding and discoursed upon it, is now himself punished by this enmity. And he turns to Peter and says, in effect, Will ye also go away? And Peter replies, anticipating the testimony that's later given at Caesarea Philippi, Lord, where shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And in the same setting, or about the same setting, it is the prophet Joseph Smith who says, The Savior has the words of eternal life. Nothing else can profit us adding in a different sermon, all will suffer, or one could add, all will be not fully alive. All will suffer until they obey Christ himself. Now I need to say in closing a little about John's way of describing miracles. For he, more than the other gospel writers, connects them in a series and reduces the great number of them to the number seven. Whether that has important significance is controversial. But in each case, the person who is delivered or healed or given new life or blessed with the control of elements is introduced to us in the setting of a family. So, for example, the first one is the concern of a marriage feast, and his own mother is the one who invokes his authority. It's the rejoicing at the beginning of family life, a marriage. The healing of the nobleman's son is, of course, involving a father who is so anxious that though he is not of the Jewish faith, and apparently has been associated with others, comes in faith and pleads. And by, as I have said, remote control, Jesus delivers the Son, and he returns to health and to his Father. The fever leaves. When he heals the invalid on the Sabbath at Bethesda, there is no mention that he has a family, and yet one is led to wonder. The loaves and fishes miracle, another nature miracle, is again a family affair, for the people have gathered in families and are in the basic need for nourishment. Some are there only out of curiosity, but others are there because they see him for what he is. The walking on the water, which John records, amidst the great wind that blew, involves his disciples, a quorum, if you will, a group who have committed their lives to him and have not been asked 
as is often said, to abandon their own families, but only to quicken and empower the building of the kingdom which is modeled by Jesus on the idea of family. Then there is the young man who is the son of anxious parents blind from birth whom Jesus heals and the parents as well as the son are involved in the incredulity and even the hostility of the nearby witnesses and finally in the raising of Lazarus Jesus gives back a brother to two grieving women namely Martha and Mary so between the lines of the miraculous performances of Jesus there is the family union. And that leads to the final point. One can ask the question, what do all of the miracles of Jesus have in common? And whatever one decides to ascribe to them, one thing is clear. Each of them and all of them are manifestations of compassion. In every instance, Jesus cares and cannot, as one verse puts it, withhold himself. In many instances, he has in fact retreated from the burdens and the pressures of the crowds who surrounded him because he is exhausted, and they even then find him. And again, the record says, he could not withhold, for he had compassion for them. So we are not looking at a series of signs that are designed to answer curiosity. We are looking at a series of miracles which manifest the love of Christ, the pure love of Christ, for the children of the Father.